Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. As usual, I'm Nigeria's best and co-hosting with me is Phoenix Agenda. The three big stories of the week are firstly, the 300 Kankara boys who were kidnapped last week have been found, but another 84 have apparently been kidnapped. The second story is crisis within the judiciary. There are reports that the Chief Justice of Nigeria is suffering from dementia. And there's also reports that Nigeria's judicial nominee to the International Criminal Court was rejected because he lacked sufficient experience. The third story is the deadline issued or given by the Minister for Communications, uh, Isa Pantami, to Nigerians who, who own mobile phones that they need to register their SIM cards with their national identity numbers, and this has to be done within two weeks. Otherwise, they'll be their phone lines will be disconnected. Discussing these issues with, with us are firstly, Ose Aneni. Ose is a hotelier and member of the People's Democratic Party, the PDP. Our good evening, second, guys. Uh, good evening. Our second guest is Ayobami. Ayobami is a communications strategist. Good evening, everyone. Yes, welcome to both Ose and Ayobami. So firstly, to Phoenix, 300 boys were kidnapped from a secondary school in Katsina, but thankfully they've been found. So firstly, how, because this is big controversy as to how they were found. As, as you know, everything with Buhari's government always seems to descend into controversy. So what happened? How, how were they found, Phoenix? Hi, Michael, and uh, hi, hi, listeners, and thanks, uh, Ayobami and Ose, for joining us uh, this week. Um, I mean, controversy is an understatement. I mean, when, when, you, when you talk about uh, um, an, an episode that ended positively in the sense that, I mean, of course, no one wanted the boys to have been kidnapped, but at least we got all of them back unhurt, all of them safe. I mean, you, <laughs> what you would prefer is to be, is, is to, is to be joyful that, I mean, you, you had that outcome, but then, I mean, just as you said, there's been controversy as to how it actually came about in the sense that we're hearing different versions of, of what happened to have the boys return to their families. On the one hand, you are, you're hearing from the Nigerian army spokesman that uh, they, they, they embarked on an operation and, and went up against the bandits and, and secured the release of the boys through a, a military offensive. Although he did say that there were negotiations ongoing. Um, at the same time, you're hearing from the Zamfara state governor because the, the boys were kidnapped in Kansina, but they, they, they were ostensibly held in, in Zamfara state. And he's saying that uh, it was the Mieti Allah who helped to secure their release. And then the Katsina state governor himself, he's saying that he spoke to the bandits and we know that he's been cavorting with bandits in that area. Uh, I mean, there's, there's evidence of that in the past. So you, there's some credence to, to his story saying that he spoke to them and, and of course they, they, I mean, that was why they were released. So you're, you're hearing different versions and you're like wondering which one is true because they're all conflicting and, and they can't all be true. So it, it begs the question, what really is the issue with this with these folks? Why would two governors and the Nigerian army not be able to have a coordinated story? Why, why, why must things always, um, why must things always not be straightforward with these people? You're yeah, like, I mean, the, the issue around the kidnapping was was really worrisome, given the number of 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 the young boys that were taken. Um, to get them back within six days is is admirable, and and we and and and, I'm, and I was beyond happy with that. But but I mean, when you when when you when you start hearing the the conflicting stories, you then begin to wonder, I mean, were, were these boys pawns in a, in a game? What's going on and, and what, what, what do the authorities think that they are playing at when they, when they cannot give you one story 
that that is clear to everyone, unambiguous, and helps everyone to understand what really what really went wrong, and how they would make sure it doesn't happen again. And just as they were saying all of that nonsense, then you hear that another eighty-four boys were 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 taken again. Although I just read a story this evening saying that they've been released as well. Um, this time, I mean, the, the the one clear story you're hearing is that it was they were released by. Um, a, an offensive led by the police or a joint action force or something of that sort. I mean, the story was just breaking, so I only got snippet of, of it. But there's clearly a problem with the security architecture in Nigeria, a, a, a clear problem. And, and the fact that it's now crisscrossing across the entire north. I mean, we, we used to have issues concentrated in the northeast. Then we started having issues in the northwest, of course, you also have the Southern Kaduna issue still burning there. So you're like, if if they don't have all of this wide expanse of of territory under under wraps, there is a there is a major problem. And before before long, some of these things will begin to go deeper into the country and create a, a major issue. I mean, they are not coordinated. They don't have they don't have a clear response to, to banditry, to Boko Haram and to all of that. And they can't even keep their stories straight. So, I mean, there, there, there are significant issues here and, and you just wonder how, how we will be able to get a, a positive outcome anytime soon. Thank you, Phoenix. I agree that it's, it's strange that one government cannot seem to be able to even coordinate its communications. So everybody seems to have different versions of events as to how the young men, young boys were rescued, but at least we're thankful that they were rescued. Now on to Oser. The, their discovery uh, raised or caused further controversy because uh, President Buhari met with the kids, with the boys in Katsina. And firstly, they said he spoke to them in Hausa instead of English, and that seemed to rile people up. And then secondly, as part of his speech, he was telling them that they should focus on science subjects and not, I think, history and English. So the two questions for you are, are firstly, was, was there any, was it, was, is it an issue that he was addressing the young boys in, in Hausa? Um. So it's the, President Buhari has, um, you know, previous on this. I recall when he was addressing some farmers again on national television. Um, he was speaking in um, Hausa, and I think maybe the, the the problem here, you know, you spoke about communication. It's that when you have a president who suffers this reputation. He's been unable to shake off that he's a section, sectional leader. You would think, you know, even if he wasn't actively taking steps to dispel that perception, his handlers around him would. Um, I know, I think he spoke on NTA. It's not beyond the um, ability of NTA to have gotten translators or the ability of his media people to have presented the rest of the country with an opportunity to hear what the president was saying because the abduction of these children wasn't a Katsina issue. It was a Nigerian issue. I think we were all um, affected in certain ways by, by the kidnapping, by the audacity and the scale of what the bandits had done, what the terrorists had done, forgive me. Um, you know, and so when there was a resolution of that situation, I think, you know, Again, bear in mind that after the kids were kidnapped, the country was begging the president to speak. Um, I don't know if you recall, while the kids were uh, with the terrorists, the president was with his cows on his ranch and those images circulated. You know, so we were asking the president to speak to us, tell us what's going on, uh, reassure us. And when he did finally, you know, appear in front of the microphone, he was speaking in answer. Um, so, I, I mean, from a comms point of view, it wasn't great. Um, the argument might be that, you know, he was speaking to Hausa children and so he wanted them to hear him. But if they were in secondary school, studying science subjects, one would assume that they would, 
you know, understand a little basic or rudimentary um, English. So from a comms perspective, I, I think it was another massive on-goal by, by the presidency. Yes, thank you. Um, also, I think I, I agree that, because I mean, I mean, two minds. On the one hand, I can see why if, if kids have just been kidnapped, released, and they're traumatized, then maybe you want to speak to them in the language that they are most comfortable with. But like you said, there should have been effort by his media team to, to have somebody translate, bearing in mind that the country is, is, is a multi-ethnic uh, country. And in fact, many of Buhari's own closest advisors, like Femi Adishino, probably don't even speak Hausa. So he should have borne that in mind. But onto the second question, which is this advice that he gave them that they should should not study art subjects like English and history, and they should focus on science. That caused controversy. Do you think that was wise counsel from Buhari? Well, I think it was ignorant counsel, and and again, it, it sort of again suggests you know when you're giving speaking points, you don't you know fully grasp um, what those speaking points are about. So we all know the, the push behind STEM um, subjects to get more people studying uh, science subjects. You know, but the, the base assumption of the, or the drive behind STEM is that people are studying social sciences, people are studying English and the rest. Um, it doesn't, the, the argument doesn't really apply to Nigeria, you know, where you have a situation where we are saying that because these kids cannot speak English. That's why the president was speaking to them in Aousa. And then the president then tells them, you know what, you don't really need to speak English anyway or history, um, focus on, on, on STEM subjects. Um, I, I, again, I think it's just him speaking to um, points that he doesn't quite fully grasp. Um, I, I know there's a space in, for develop, in development for science, physics, chemistry, biology, mathematics, I know all of that, but you do need to have a base of English, of literature, of history, and um, to be able to, you know, to succeed, I think, in those other subjects. And, um, but just before we, you know, I, I round up on this, I, I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, I do have concerns um, beyond just happiness that these kids have come come back, I do have concerns that there was a video by one of these the kids in English, where he says some of them had been killed. Um, you know, so I'm I'm slightly concerned. You know, we're saying everyone that was abducted, you know, has come back. Um, I, I'm gravely concerned that you know we seem to have even if they are not as coordinated as they might be in the Northeast, we appear to have an active Boko Haram presence now in the Northwest, which is about the size of the United Kingdom. Um, if Boko Haram is expanding into the Northwest, it's, 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 a, it's a grave, it should be of grave concern to every single Nigerian um, beyond just the fact that we negotiated with bandits and got these kids back. Uh, I would have hoped that we would be having a, a, a serious conversation. At least the country will be having a serious conversation, you know, about what has what is happening in the Northwest. Thank you, Ose. Uh, the one of the points you raised is what I was going to ask Ayobami. Um, Ayobami, the the number the two two questions I want to you to focus on. But the first is what Ose has said: the concern about Boko Haram. Uh, expanding its reach into the Northwest. And I suppose my question is, there is still controversy as to who took the boys. A lot of mainstream people are even peddling conspiracies that they think maybe somehow the government was involved. There's another group that say it was Boko Haram. Another group say it was uh, just general bandits. So in, in your view, what really happened? Was this kidnap genuine? And if it was genuine, who did it? Um, thank you for having me. Uh, let me start with the second question, actually. Um, the thing is, I, I do not subscribe to the opinion that um, the government might have organized the kidnap themselves. I don't think, uh, while these people are crazy, I don't think um, 
that is possible. But what's it, it was just a funny coincidence that they were released on the president's birthday. It was more like the most expensive birthday gift in the world. So um, local gangs might have done it. Um, most likely recruited by Boko Haram Shekau, or local gangs got these boys, then realized that they had odd uh, property, then reached out to Shekau to do the negotiations for them. Because it was not a coincidence that the video, the proof of life video that came out um, ended with Shekau's boys. He came through the same Boko Haram channels. It was Sakida's platform, uh, Iman Angu that broke it. You know, it was just like a normal Boko Haram communication strategy as if I if I'm allowed to put it that way. And um Shekau spoke at the end. He said he had 526 boys. We got 340 boys back or 345 because that's what the Nigerian Air Force came to say um about a day after. So we don't even have a figure which goes back into what Ose was saying about um, some of them being killed. And we don't know if we still have 100 plus with stories now because uh, Shekau said he had 526 and we are celebrating the release of 300 something. So um, I don't think, I do, I do not believe the conspiracy theory that the government might have organized it themselves, but it, it, it was really weird. And the lack of proper comms as to what happened makes you think, okay, there's something fishy here. There's a problem here that this, there's something that they are not telling us that very much is obvious. And uh, with Boko Haram spread into the Northwest, um, Imanangu released a story like a year or two before about uh, Shekau boasting about uh, about his spread into the Northwest. See, we are in a situation where their strategy before was to hold territory, um, control these territories, get taxes, um, collect money from farmers and fish farmers, control fish trade. That was, that was what they were doing before. They are still doing it in some territories now, especially around uh, the Lake Chad. But now he's going after a bigger spread. And Lime Mohamed has been able to do something. His only achievement for me it was to suppress editors um, in their, um, on their news platform. So they went from uh, terrorists to full enhancement. Now it's just bandits. So whatever happens, a Boko Haram attack, you hear banditry. So what we now have in the Northwest is banditry from President States in Katsina to Zamfara to even Kano sometimes. But there is active Boko Haram presence. And now, by stroke of faith, which I don't, I don't think Shekau, I, I think he's, he's crazy enough to have done that. The day the president got into Katina, they went to kidnap from 346 to 535 boys, depending on the account you want to believe. That is not a coincidence as well. That's a message as to tell the president who the real controller of the town is. And it seems to me that it is these bandits or terrorists or what, what, what you have there. So now we are in the communications war with, sadly, our government, if we are supposed to label these people as terrorists or bandits. But every time I read banditry in the news, I just assume it's Boko Haram. It just helps me to focus on the amount of lives and properties that we are losing to these people. No, I, I think you're, you're right. Um, like you, I, I don't believe the conspiracies that the government would have been involved because, in my view, they're they not competent enough. Yes, a Mr. Bean government. So I don't think they'd be capable of that kind of thing. But my, my other question then is from the politics because it seems to me that Buhari is some kind of Teflon-type fellow that no matter what happens, his brand doesn't seem to be damaged uh, politically. So imagine you're in your home state of Katsina, they, they terrorists come kidnap 300 people in your school. You're not moved. You're just relaxing on your farm, tending to your cows. And somehow your brand doesn't seem to be damaged. So how is Buhari able to achieve this? Um, I think, uh, you know, the way he came in, with the um, sectional agenda, let me put it that way. Nigerians are very um, proud or we, we seek pride in our ethnic identities. So Bwari has been able to weaponize this. He came out you know, in support of Sharia. At the beginning of Boko Haram, he said he, an attack on Boko Haram is an attack 
against the North. He accused the Nigerian Army of all sorts. He said he questioned why they would um, be paying Nigeria Delta militants but kill people in the North. So he, he showed himself, you know, he, sometimes I just look at it like this guy is just in the country that got pop, uh, popular support. You, you might look at it that way. And he has this fanatic followers as well. Even down, I'm from, I'm from the Southwest, and you can see that there are some of his followers that it is purely for religious reasons for them. Purely. I'm not saying he doesn't have uh, intellectual followership or whatnot, but the core of the base, they are for reasons that you, you, you can't convince somebody about their ethnicity or their religion over beer at night. If you were discussing um, maybe monetary policy or something, maybe you can have a point, but this is somebody that is a representative of several Nigerians, you know, the core ethnic identity, the core religious identity. But I won't say that his brand has not been damaged. I believe nowadays you have, you know, young Northerners trying to talk that, oh, uh, Buhari is not doing enough. I know when elections come, they will shut up because that's, that's the type of society that they have built. You know, it's a feudalist society where when um, kings and prominent people come together to make a decision, you can hardly um, talk against it. But you have younger people now, you know, more progressive people coming out to say, you know what, this president is not doing enough and we have done everything for him. We voted for him four times for some of them, three or two times. It might sound crazy to some of us, but it, it represents what several people want to see. And uh, I keep going back to the Nigerian um, family structure where you, you, you have a father or a fatherly figure, as, as it were, that controls everything. This is the way a lot of us grew up. So this strong man presence, it's, <laughs> over the years, people have seen it as the norm. And they've grown into it. And that's why they, they were looking at Jonathan as a weak man. When you allow too many people to have opinions, they see you as not strong enough. Unlike, you know, that father figure in the house that comes in at night and the food is served with um, three meats. And all. that is how Nigerians have been brought up. And Wari just represents something like that to a lot of people. I, I agree that there are younger people criticizing him now, but... In my personal view, I don't think it has affected his political appeal. I think if Buhari were to run for office again, uh, he will still get a significant number of people, even those criticizing him. I think they will still support him. But anyway, on to our next topic, the crisis in the judiciary. Uh, first, on the, the first half is our Chief Justice, Justice Tanko, who nobody has seen for quite a while. Apparently, he, uh, that's from the Gazette newspaper. They're reporting that he's down with dementia. He doesn't remember uh, most details that apparently he thinks the president of Nigeria is Obasanjo, not uh, Buhari. And it's also reported that he's so ill that it is his son who is running the judiciary on his behalf. So the joke came out that he's, he's a son-in-law, in quotations. So to... Phoenix, on the first half of this judicial crisis, how have we gotten here that a chief justice has dementia and nobody's saying anything and his son is the one running the place on his behalf? Is this, what, what is going on? I think the first place to start is to say, I mean, it's, it's still, um, I mean, this, these are not stories that have been validated. So, while while there are pieces that help to make the story um, take roots, I mean, one also has to be a bit circumspect. But Peter says, I, mean, I think the bigger issue for me is it's it's now become official state policy, right? That that a a, a senior member of government can have issue um, can have health issues, significant health issues, and rather than stepping aside or or being or more importantly being factual with the Nigerian people instead they hide it and they act as though the person is okay and and, and that has become the way things are in Nigeria I mean we saw it with uh, with Buhari who was sick and and was out of the country for what's over 130 something days 
and nobody told any um, told Nigerians how how he was faring or what he was wrong with him. We, we had no idea um, what happened to him. He came back and told us that it was the worst he had ever felt in his life. Blah 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 blah. We had this. but that was it. And now we're being told that I mean the head of the of the of of um, one of the arms of of government, I mean the the chief justice of Nigeria has dementia has been away from the country for a while now, um, ostensibly getting treated or whatever. The stories that we are hearing is that they had actually been hiding him for a while. They had moved him from Abuja to Kaduna and then now to Dubai. But the point is, there should be an official statement on, on such matters. There should be an official statement on such matters. I mean, there can you cannot allow there to be a vacuum because that's, what ha what, that's what's happening now. So who is determining... I mean, cases going to the Supreme Court, who is, it's his role is to determine what justices sit on what panels. So who's doing that now? Who is, I mean, who is making, I mean, if the NJC is recommending to, to um, he, because he's chairman of the National Judicial Commission, and of course they are the ones that sanction, that appoint, that recommend for appointment, judges and all of that. Who is performing that on his behalf? Because nobody has told anybody in Nigeria that he's incapacitated, that he's not able to perform his function. And they are running the, the judiciary as though nothing has happened. That is the part that just blows my mind. That it, I mean, and we're, and we're moving on like a country as if, as if nothing is wrong, as if this is okay, as if it's, it's the norm. And, and, and it stems from, you know, when you allow something to happen and let it go and it just becomes, it just takes root. And, 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 I, and I also hold the, the, the fourth estate to account, I mean, the media. Yes, this was broken by, um, I believe it was broken by People's Gazette. I don't know if any other uh, medium has carried it. But what what are they there for? They are they are they are correspondents. They are reporters who because that's how it works, right? They are going to be reporters whose brief is to is is cover the judiciary, cover um, that arm of government, cover the courts, cover the Supreme Court. Surely they must have been going there and they haven't seen the man for a while. Nobody thought that it was worth investigating or or talking about and and making noise about it. They've become so coward. I mean. Ibami was making the comment around what uh, Lai Mohammed had done to the editors. I mean, we know very well that, I mean, on the Boko Haram front, he had done that going around and intimidating them. And we know all the fines that they, that they pass, especially during these NSAS protests when they were finding Arise TV. And I can't remember the other two for running stories that embarrassed the government. But, but surely the, the, the media cannot allow themselves to be called to this degree where, I mean, they help to cover up things like this. It is unconscionable. And for me, that is the bigger issue here. How this can be allowed to go on, I don't even want to know whether his son or his son-in-law, whatever is running the place. Why, how can this be allowed to carry on? That, that We need to get to the bottom of that. Thank you, Phoenix. I'm in agreement that this is not normal. It, it's weird. And it's, it's strange that things like this are carrying on in uh, Buhari's Nigeria. However, to Oseh, the question for you is, and I'm trying to understand if, if there's more to this, why is it a problem for Justice Tanko to just say, look, I'm not well, let me hand over to the next in line. I think it's Justice uh, Rhodes Viva who's next in line. Why doesn't he just hand over to the person? Why does he literally want to die in in office so it's it's a it's a it's a it's a simple question to answer because if you if you hand over you would die out of office um nigeria is is a is a jungle and um, you sort of are protected by the office you hold the power you hold and your proximity to power Unfortunately, we are surrounded, you know, so if you are the chief justice, if you are a governor, uh, regardless of the public office you hold, you are surrounded by sharks, not, not friends. Um, and, you know, if they smell blood or weakness, you know, what they do is that they will take you out of 
out of commission. You know, we don't live in societies where, you know, you can be ill for six months and take a leave of absence, knowing that when you get well, you know, you won't have been um, plotted out of your seat. That, that's not how Nigeria works. So you, you, you then find that people, when they hold on to office, um, just, just for their own sakes almost, cannot really afford to, to do the right thing. Um, and it's not an APC thing. We saw it with um, yeah, Dua when he was literally dead and the people around him continued to pretend he was, he was um, corpus mentis because they needed his, his cover to continue to wield public office and the appurtenances of, that, that come with it. Um, it's the same thing that happened with the president when he was ill and went away. Remember, he went, he was ill and went away, and Osimba Joe almost uh, overthrew him with performance, for want of a better word. And since then, the president has not handed over to Osimba Joe. You know, so you know the, the society sort of um, conditions these people, and I'm not saying it's the right thing. I'm just tell, calling it as it is. It's dangerous to hand over. We also see, you know, because that had become president, because Yadua did it, because um, Buhari did it. Um, I recall a story about Gambari where, I think it was also People's Gazette that reported it, where, you know, he's old and probably infirm and his son is running, um, you know, his office. Um, it speaks again to the feudal, feudal nature of the Nigerian state, where when you get office, the, the people around you, your family, feel they are entitled, you know, to wield power on your behalf, just because they are your sons or your brothers or uncles or aunties. Um, that's the Niger nature of Nigerian states. Um, I don't know how we change it. Thank you, uh, Usai. Almost. Uh... So I almost fell off my chair laughing when you said <laughs> the the vice president uh, almost overthrew Buhari with performance. But yes, that the the contrast was stark because Buhari was basically doing nothing, and Osimanjo was just doing the basic stuff a president should do, and the, the difference became became clear. So yes, Buhari was probably worried. But my follow up question to you, Ose, is there have also been reports that there seems to be some kind of ethnic angle to the problem that I think they said there's about six justices below uh, Justice Tanko who are Southerners. And if he relinquishes, relinquishes office, those Southerners will be in line and Buhari might not want that. Do you think there's credence to that? Or is that just mere speculation? You know, so, you know, if you asked me as a political um, actor, who the most powerful person in Nigeria is, I will tell you it's the Chief Justice of Nigeria, um, simply because he controls who becomes president, um, which was why for me, you know, what happened to Onogen um, was, you know, one of the deadliest and heaviest blows that democracy has suffered. Um, Again, speaking about uh, Professor Simba Joe, you saw the reluctance to confirm Onogen, a southerner, um, while Buhari was in his office. Onogen only became Chief Justice because Buhari was indisposed and the acting vice president, the acting president at the time, Simba Joe, confirmed him. Um, and Onogen was immediately dispatched once Buhari came back and a Sharia court judge. Um, became our chief justice. You know, when you talk about sectional stuff, um, you know, you just, you, you, you look at the actions and words of, of these characters. I remember um, the chief justice of the Federal Republic of Nigeria going to Zaria to a conference on Sharia law, lawyers and talking about having the, they, them having the numbers now to push through constitutional changes that will um, favor Muslims. Um, these are this. This is literally a direct quote from the Chief Justice of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. So, of course, when you look at the outcomes of electoral um, um, cases that land in the Supreme Court, you you understand the need to control that office. 
you know so you know for people who are who are focused on regime control um that seat is an important seat and if regime control is built on this on the foundation of uh, sectionalism then there will be a sectional agenda that comes through in the, in the determination of who becomes the chief judge justice of nigeria who becomes the ig of police who are the service chiefs of this country um, you can see a common thread um, you don't need to be a brilliant political strategist to to decipher it thank you sir i i, I think i share your views that uh, buhari has ethno-sized governance to a significant significant level. So for him, obviously, he takes an interest in, in who the Chief Justice is. To Ayobami, the second half of this uh, judicial drama, Justice Ishak Bello of the Federal High Court was nominated to the International Criminal Court. Even at the time, there was uproar because his CV, there was, there was nothing spectacular about his CV. And even then, there were already hints that this man was not qualified for the position. But now the, the vote has taken place, and he only got five votes out of a potential 110. So the first question, Ibami, is why would Nigeria nominate someone who was so unqualified to that kind, to, to that sort of prestigious position? Um, yeah, uh, for... <laughs> I think this is one of the um, craziest decisions I've seen because in the first place, you have um, this type of um, seat to, to fill as a, a country like Nigeria, you didn't throw it up to the public, civil society organizations were not allowed to come in. Then you pick a judge that is literally against everything the ICC stands for. There are judgments that is done in the past that, you know, Questionable judgments. Um, it was the judge in charge of the Apple Apple Six case that we all know about, and it took him twelve years to do this. Why? The family and the lawyers alleged that he was to get one of the cops off, even if that that is not true. In his judgment, he stated that um, the top cops that ordered the junior cops to shoot, according to multiple eyewitnesses, did not have their fingerprints on the weapon. Meanwhile, he convicted two junior policemen that did not have their fingerprints on the weapon. What sort of judgment is that? This, it, it's not, if I can do this privately, if I can just do this due diligence privately, not talk of the International Criminal Court. So it, it was a terrible decision. There was another one. Um, I think we all remember when um, Senator, is the deputy Senate president now, uh, he went to take the mace from the Senate uh, during the Senate or other Saraki. You mean Omo Agege? Omo Agege, sorry, Omo Agege, yeah. He, he went to take the mace and they were looking for him. You know, there was um, an arrest warrant. Guess the judge that gave him an ex parte order that he must not be arrested. This same man, Ishak <laughs> Belu. Well, he gave Omo Agege an ex parte order that he should not be. He literally gave a sitting senator that just told the mace immunity from arrest and prosecution. So you are nominating this type of judge to the International Criminal Court. Apart from the poor CV and his honorary PhD from some unknown Caribbean university, just look at these two instances that I've told you. Is it possible for you to have, I mean, imagine if you were one of the people voting in the, uh, the International Criminal Court and they give you these two things. Are you going to vote this person to be, to be seated as a judge of the International Criminal Court? It's not possible. Let's be honest to ourselves. Unlike Nigeria, that you know, you can just bribe a few people on the panel and you, you get called. These are people that will look at your CV and your antecedents. And if you look at these antecedents, you can already tell that this is not somebody that qualifies to be a judge at the International Criminal Court. So, this is another example of worries, um, nepotism, uh, and it's so incompetent because I'm sure. Even if he wants to choose a Muslim northerner for this position, he can get a better one, not one that is in public for the Apostles case and the Omoagege case. It's terrible because these are things that if you check the second page of Google, you are going to see. So why do you have to do this? Even if you, you know, have a lot of uh, 
if you, you do his because if you check his Wikipedia page, it's all good, you know, a communication strategist, like probably like we did some work there. You can't see all every all, all the bad sides. But by the time you keep on searching, you already can tell the kind of judges. By the time you read the old judgments, you can tell that this person is not qualified for this position. So it's rather unfortunate that it just shows how much we've lost our source power in the world as well. You know, the, the diplomacy is so bad. Nigeria can nominate somebody and you get five votes. It's it's totally insane. But it just goes to show you how incompetent uh, Buhari's parochial mindset is and where it's taking us as a country. I 100% agree, Ayobami, because when I was at university, one of the law lecture, one of the legal minds we studied was uh, T.O.S. Elias, Tasmin Olawale Elias, who was Nigeria's, uh, I think he was chair, he was the head of the World Court. And then you also got to read about people like Justice Ayola, I think at the time who was Justice of Uganda, of the Gambia. And then you read about Justice uh, Oyema, who was the father of the current uh, foreign minister. These, these were men with gravitas. I mean, when you looked at their CVs, you could tell that, okay, this dude can be a judge in any country and can stand tall intellectually with any judge of any country in the world. But then you look at the CV of, of this current nominee, and you just think, I, I, I don't, I, what I'm trying to understand is, I know you want to be, uh, the, the government might have wanted to be nepotistic, but you mean, there was nobody in that chain of command who looked at his CV and said, no, 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 you guys, th this is the wrong person. Maybe we should send Mary Wyatt, who's a lawyer or, or somebody. You mean we don't have that uh, chain, where, where that break in the chain, where somebody could actually tell Buhari or the chief justice and say, look, you guys, this is not the person. We don't have that kind of thing. We just spoke about the chief justice, not even being of uh, good mind right now. I mean, I, I believe the People's Gazette story because um, let me just go back into that. When they reported that he had COVID, the spokesperson for the Supreme Court came out. Uh, a lot of people missed that particular story. Came out to say, oh, no, he doesn't have COVID. Um, that's a police story and all that. Uh, it's fine. If everybody's saying they haven't seen him for a while, it's because he's doing his work um, in private as COVID uh, guidelines want. But then People's Gazette came out to say, oh, no, it's not COVID. He has dementia and health issues. Till today, I'm still looking for the spokesman of the Supreme Court to deny this particular one. There's no denial. It's just silence. And by the time you talk to several Supreme Court sources, they are going to tell you that even if we don't know what is exactly going on, we have not seen this man for months. So forget from that angle. From Buari, there's nobody that can question him. If um, people, you know, people in the cabal, as it were, come and tell him that, oh, this is the best, best person, this guy does not take bribe, he's the best judge, we had the DSS check his account, you know, those things that the superlatives that Buhari like, oh, he's upright and this and the capital is a, a Muslim northerner. Buhari would appoint him without, or will nominate him without even thinking about it. So the, the, that chain of command, that thing that you're looking for, it's just not there. Nobody will research. And um, let, me, let me just remind you that Malami, that I believe made this nomination, is very close to this particular judge. Malami appointed him as the head of some presidential committee on prison decongestion or something. And it was Malami that failed to appeal the Apostles case as well. After the, uh, the, the, this justice was embarrassed with the judgment, Malami said he was not going to appeal it. So he's not even in the court of appeal. So they are very close. Uh, there are reports that the families are close. So if Malami is nominating it because of this, Barry won't say no to Malami that, you know, supposedly knows more about um, legal issues than he does. So thank you. I, I didn't even realize that uh, he and uh, Malami were this close. So it, it all makes sense. So. Uh, you know, in, in, in America, Bush talked about an axis of evil. It seems here we have an axis of incompetence between Malami, the Chief Justice, and this Ishak Bello. There's, there's clearly a, a, a triumvirate of incompetence. But anyway, on to our final topic. Um, let me just jump in. Before we move on, um, I, I, I just, I, I had hoped um, someone would bring it up. You know, the, the, I think the, the, the great tragedy isn't just that 
you know, this guy only got five votes. It's that the current ICC president is a Nigerian. You know, we, ha we, were, we, were, we had Kaliba good enough to lead the ICC. I think Justice um, Osuji was nominated in 2011 or 2012 by Jonathan. He has been there for almost eight years. He became the president, I think, in 2018. He's a Nigerian, he's from Imo State. He is the current president. And then to follow him, we nominate a guy that doesn't get five votes. I, I think that's the great tragedy of this story. No, thank you, Joseph. I, I'm sorry, I actually missed that. I didn't realize that uh, the Justice Osuji was uh, still there. So yes, you can see the contrast in qualifications and competence, once again, between uh, uh, Jonathan and uh, what happened to Jonathan, what happened to Buhari? But anyway, moving on to our final topic, uh, there's probably going to be some comparison there, there again between uh, the former minister under Jonathan and, and, and the new one. But uh, Issa Pantami, the Minister for Communications and Technology, I think Communications Technology or Information Communications Technology, um, announced out of the blue last week that Nigerians had two weeks to register their SIM cards and get them connected to their national identity numbers. And if they didn't do that, their phones, their phone lines will be cut off. And apparently they're almost, I think, I think they said about almost 200 million phone lines. So to Phoenix, why this sudden instruction and why the two week deadline? You know, I mean, I mean, there's this thing that we hate. We 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 say a lot in Nigeria. I mean, we talk about anyhowness, and 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 you're like, I mean, how do you how do you define it? And and for me, I'll just point anybody to this story. There there's so many things to unpack, but one of the things that jumps out at me is, wait, you don't get. Number one, let me let me first say that having a a national identity program is it's it's so past due that it's it's embarrassing to be talking about it today in 2020 that they have not been able to deliver it and this has this is not just about the Bukhari government it's about all the governments that we've had it, it, it's unconscionable that we don't have a, a national identity system and it, and it's and it's down to the governments up until this present one that have not been able to implement it successfully we know I mean, I personally have have had to wait and still didn't get it. I know people who have been trying to get their national identity number sorted out for five years. So against that backdrop, knowing fully well that it is the incompetence of the government that has not allowed this program to take place, you don't wake up in December, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of all that has happened in 2020, and then tell people, oh, by the way, we're going, to, we're going to cut off your phone lines and send a message to the telecoms companies that if you don't do it, you will lose your license. That we're going to cut off your phone lines if in two weeks, you don't first get a national identity number and then make sure that it's connected to your SIM card. So in effect, you are penalizing the people for your own incompetence. So, 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 so that, so that's one part of it. The second part of it is you don't even do, you don't do such. Yes, you, you, I mean, you, you will come with punitive measures after you've given people time, right? You've, you've socialized this conversation. You've told people. You've done the, the public engagements. You've shown them why it should be done. You've trained them. You've done FAQs. You've done the proper communication to make sure that everybody is aware. You've put the infrastructure in place. Because we're talking about national identity, people should be able to go to their local governments and get registered and get their national identity number. You've not done any of this. You just wake up and decide that no, actually, I, I mean, we are government, so we can say whatever we like, we can do whatever we like. In two weeks, we are gonna get it done. We haven't prepared for it, we haven't done anything. I'm just giving you two weeks to go and get it done. <clears throat> and after announcing your two weeks, all of a sudden we're hearing that, oh, you've licensed 200 private bodies to, to now be issuing national identity number. And again, it just tells you how crazy these people are. Number one, it, it shocks me that you can license a private entity to be issuing a national identity. You know, so 
Pantami is, I mean, I, we've talked about him on this show before. I mean, be it the, the nonsense he was dragging with ABKW or even there was there was one earlier, um, um, I, I can't remember now, sometime it's earlier in the year, he issued another one of these directs. I think it was around the, the postal service or something like that. There was some drama. So the guy, his antecedents are well known to doing all of this nonsense. But you see, it's a function of the government in which he's operating. So they've 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 decided that look, this command and control thing, this is how we operate, and I mean, damn all the consequences. To even explain to you how ill thought the policy is, and that they didn't think they didn't even think about it, they weren't prepared. The the charge, the charge, he had to then just recent, just I think it was during the week also give another directive that telecoms companies should not charge people for asking for their for the um, short code that they send to get their their NIM. So they didn't have that conversation and I've agreed it before. Those were the charging, then he decides that no, you shouldn't charge. So who's going to pick up the bill? Who's going to pay for it? I mean, these are the guys that, that are holding back the Nigerian entity. We can't move forward with these people because number one, they don't think Number two, they, they are incapable of creating, a, a con, the creating conditions for us to, to, for, to create value, to make the country move forward. They, they consistently come up with things that just don't make any sense. And then, to, I mean, to, to, to come back to your question as to why, I'm still struggling to understand the objective. They've talked about security. And I'm like, okay, I, I mean, Yes, everybody should have a national identity number, but there are so many numbers out there, right? There's BVN, there's, I mean, even to have a phone line, you, they, you've already submitted your biometrics, they've done all of that audit. So you telling me that, yes, this is going to help with security again, it's just one more thing that, that you're asking people to do that you've already asked for before. But I suspect that this is, this, that there's some nefarious thinking going on whereby they, 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 is good. They, they, are, they are trying to crack down on people and the more information they have around people, the, the, the more they will be able to build this, this police state kind of scenario that it looks like they're looking for. Because that can, only, that can be the only explanation to me for this, all of a sudden we must get, we must get everybody with NINs and NINs linked to their phone and and then you think about all these things that they've been trying to do around social media and all those kind of things. So you begin to wonder, is that what's driving some of the thinking around this? But beyond that, just, just the craziness of thinking that you can wake up and in two weeks, tell over a hundred million people to go, and, to go and register when you have not provided the infrastructure for it to be done and, and threaten, um, threaten to, for them to lose their phone lines. When in a country where we don't have landlines, where a lot of people, that's how they make their livelihood. You're going to take that away from them. And even more, more importantly, we are in the middle of a recession. The only, the only part of the economy that seems to be doing well has been telecoms. So there are just so many things that just tell you that this, this Pantami guy, I mean, is part of the total rubbish that is this, this government. And I mean, we talk about it all the time, but this is another thing that just that just brings it to the fore. It's just it's just sheer lunacy. Thank you, Phoenix. I I agree that it makes no sense, especially the, the short deadline and the what seems to be a duplication of uh, of effort. Um, also, this is where I want to bring you in because I think Phoenix touched on it, and I remember that when Buhari first came into office. There was this fight that his government had with MTN about people's lines not being registered. So I thought that had been resolved and to get a mobile phone line, you, you already had to give uh, pieces of identification. So is, is it, isn't this, so does, does, isn't this some kind of duplication if we already, if they already have the information? Um, of, of course it is. So we have, you know, um, channels that capture data and, and apparently data in silos all over Nigeria. If you have a bank or, account... Or, or to, how to rephrase the question, um, it's still the same question, but I want, can you talk me through 
how people currently get their phone lines, what information they have to give, because I don't understand why this new requirement is there. So to get a phone line, it's, it's literally the same process you would, you would use to get a BVN. So you would go to, even if it's a roadside operator, you would go and sit down under an umbrella by the side of the road. Um, you would give your details. They would take a picture of you, capture your biometrics. You know, they have these portable devices that do all of that. Just like you would do if you walked into a bank, they would capture your biometrics as well. Um, just like you would do if you went to give your, do your driver's license. So we have all these, these people capturing data, um, but nobody seems to be speaking uh, to each other. I think the first real attempt I have seen is where they said to get a Nigerian passport, you need to have a name and you need to link your name to the passport. So I think that's the first uh, real attempt. So anybody that has a new Nigerian passport will have their name uh, linked to it, you know, but it just it just is a duplication of efforts. Um, it doesn't make any sense why, you know, if I if the telcos have my data um, and NIMSI has my data, why they can't speak to each other? Why I need to carry my 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 number from one point to the other point? It, it doesn't make any sense. Speaking on MTN, MTN have laughed and said we take them at least six months to do what the federal government wants them to do. Um, but I don't want us to just pile on on, on Pantani here. Um, to be fair to him, um, this directive was first issued in February, I think it was. Um, so, you know, there was a bit of time given, you know, to um, for people to get their names linked to their um, SIM cards, no matter how pointless it might have been. The problem, however, was that in March, you know, we shut down because of COVID-19 and everything has shut down since. In December, we are facing what we call the second or third wave. Um, so it doesn't make any sense to expect that people would have been queuing to go and reg link, register their NINs uh, in the middle of a pandemic. It even makes less sense to, to expect 100 million or so odd people to congregate at, at centers, at telcos and at uh, NIMSI centers um, to do this registration uh, with less than two weeks to the end of the year. You would expect, because clearly the minister is listening to feedback, um, since he had reversed the 20 Naira charge, you would have expected by now that he would have issued further clarification or further directive on, on this policy, maybe extend it into um, the end of the first quarter of next year, um, you know, but we haven't had that. And, you know, I, I think that is where I have a problem with Pantani. Away from just the ridiculousness of this, of this, this, the insistence of this deadline, we're in the middle of a recession, like um, Phoenix just said. And telcos, I think, were either the, the highest growth sector or the second highest. How do you shut it down? It, it makes no sense to me. You would, you, you know, we're looking to get out of the recession. Why are you attacking our highest growth sectors? It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Thank you, sir. I, I agree. What, what, where I disagree actually is this idea that when you said to be fair to him, because like you've already said, they gave the instruction in February, but there was a lockdown. And the lockdown has not really been relaxed because we still have COVID and people have not been really free to move about. So to then give them a two-week deadline in the middle of a second wave is indicative of the incompetence of uh, Pantami and his team. So I don't think I would agree to be, in quotations, be fair to him because it, it's clear that they haven't thought of this uh, policy through no but it does speak to to like i said what the priorities of this regime uh, forgive me for calling them a regime what the price of this regime are so remember if you, if you look at the border closure it wasn't a consideration of the economy that guided those decisions it was security um and it's the same type of reasoning that is, is, is sort of behind this telco uh, NIN registration thing 
you know, no one is talk, thinking about how is this going to impact the economy? It's how is this going to help us, you know, take um, tighter control of the Nigerian state as a security, um, from a security point of view. Oh, no, thank you. So I, I see what you, you mean, uh, security, even though they're still not delivering on that, even, even, though, the, even though they claim that's their priority. But to Ayobami, the final question goes to you. It's in two parts. The first is, I know you're a bit of a, a tech geek. So the first question, uh, which requires a quick response is, wasn't there a way to get this done? Couldn't, wasn't there a way to get this done behind the scenes, i.e. get all the data-based people in the government to try to link up their individual pieces of data without harassing ordinary Nigerians? Wasn't that doable? Um, definitely it's doable because all the details you need for your SIM card is the same details you do for name, the same details for driver's license and for BVN as well. And by the time you triangulate all these, you can definitely do everything they're asking people to do, to link, to do it manually, either go in or to do it with your phone lines. It's definitely possible for them to have done that behind the scenes. Oh. No, thank you. Thank you for confirming my suspicion. So on to the second and final question then. This uh, Pantami fellow always seems to be in the news for controversy. I've never heard of a time he's been in the news for something positive. So are you able to talk us quickly about his background? Like, how did he get into this office? Is he even qualified for the position, in your view? Um, in my view, he's not qualified for the position. And I will start with um, the background, as you asked for. Um, some years ago, we had the WikiLeaks, you know, it was everywhere in the world. Uh, until recently, I shared it on Twitter. I'm not sure a lot of people went through uh, Pantami's side of uh, things down there. Um, this man was rusticated from Zaria because of uh, the way he used to preach. You know, Pantami, okay, is an Islamic cleric. I, I wanted to say he used to be, but he's still an Islamic cleric. Still, still today, he leads uh, Friday prayers in mosques and he goes down there to preach. So he used to be a fiery preacher under Jonathan, you know, talking about the insurgency and, uh, but just to go back to WikiLeaks, they reported that, you know, his type of preaching led to riots. So they rusticated him from the university. And do you want to hear the funniest coincidence? His predecessor, Shitu. There's a white paper, I'm from Oyo State. There's a white paper in Oyo State right now that, you know, advised Shitu to stop preaching because his preaching led to riots in Shaki then. Um, this particular riot in Shaki affected me personally. So the story stays with me for a long time. Um, Shitu and a group of uh, other extremists, they were fighting against um, or in support of hijab use in a particular um, uh, tertiary institution and it led to serious riots in the United States then. So Buhari has nominated two Islamic extremists in charge of communications. I don't know how to put that because Omar uh, Johnson was the one there before them and we all know our pedigree in the entire world, not just in Yaba Tech or Yaba Khan Valley but we all know our pedigree in the world. So now you have back-to-back -back Islamic extremists leading communications. And no matter how you want to push away WikiLeaks, I'm sure United States um, representatives in the country still go through those because you know it was a conversation with uh, US ambassadors. So they still go through that. And they, they will profile somebody like Pantami then you look at the way they look at Nigerians when we have these people leading the communication sector. So do I think Pantami is qualified? I don't think so. Do I think people with history of extremism should lead any government agency? Definitely not communications for it. Definitely not because this is supposed to be the future. Buari was there telling Katina kids to focus on STEM, but you appointed somebody that was rescued from another university for extremism in charge of communications. I will never understand the decision. I never understood she was one. I don't know how the Senate uh, process goes that our senators just overlook this. Because I remember um, she period, I was part of a group that actually wrote a petition to the Senate then. But one senator just read it and everybody was just like, ah, no, 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 it's all good. You know, he's an extremist and so was the president nominated him, let's move on. That's, uh, we are here today. 
<laughs> so um, we keep rewarding bad behavior, and this is where we get policy uh, policy issues like we have right now. Thank you, thank you, Ibami, for giving us the the overview. It's it's truly shocking. I I didn't realize that both uh, Pantami and Shitu had backgrounds in extremism. It sort of explains their very odd behavior because I know even Abiker Dabiri, who is supposed to be a or who is a special advisor to Buhari, has also accused uh, Pantami of, of of extremism in the way he, he treats women. So. It's very strange that uh, Buhari's government is made up of all kinds of, it's like a motley crew of the incompetent and the uh, perhaps uh, misfits. But anyway, I must thank you. Uh, first, thank you, Ayobami, and thank you, Ose, uh, for taking time out to be on the uh, podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, always a pleasure. And then I must also thank our loyal listeners who always give us helpful feedback and have been supporting us since we started this podcast. So until next week, I think I think next week is Christmas. So I'll, the next time you hear from us will be after Christmas. So I say to those of you who uh, celebrate Christmas, I say Merry Christmas. And to others, I say Happy Holidays. But until same time next week, I say have a fantastic seven days. Thanks, Ayabami, and thanks also for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for listening. And uh, thanks, Michael, again, for coordinating another great episode. Um, you know, I, I always talk about, and we, and we want to keep it on the, on the front foot on our show, uh, the Lekki Massacre and, uh, you know, the offshoots of the NSARS uh, protests. Today is the 20th of, uh, of December, so exactly two months ago, uh, Nigerian military men open fire on uh, peaceful protesters. So we won't forget, especially because the Buhari government has not done anything about it, has not held anyone to account. We'll continue to talk about it. And uh, now that we see that the ICC is taking Nigeria cases seriously, we know that one day uh, Buratai and his gang will pay for what they've done. Thank you, everyone, and uh, see you again next week. Bye.